0: Welcome to today's show, and with me I've got a very special guest, Peter Hoyer. Peter is a... I don't want to call him retired, but he looks retired. Partly. (laughs) Partly retired. Peter started uh, working in the liquor industry when? Soon after you were born.
1: Pretty much, I would say. (laughs) Pretty much, I would say.
0: But uh, interesting for me is that Peter's dad was... in the, in the business as well. He he started, for example, Argyle Liquors, which is now the famous Liberty Liquors in Durban.
1: That's correct. It and Montana Sellers at the time.
0: Montana Sellers. Is, uh, yeah, I remember that on the invoice it always said Montana Sellers when we delivered there yes, in the old right. days. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, maybe start with your father. What? How did he end up maybe. in the business? Well,
1: we can start with my father, but... Uh, of some point of interest, if we go back a, a bit earlier than that, my grandfather was um, part of the original Snell set-up in, oh, in really? Dewey, right back in the day, and I don't know much of that history save to say that he at one point was a director of the original Snell Okay and, uh, Was it uh,
0: before, before the Hoopers were involved? Yes, or have I they it always?
1: Was, I think it was before the Hoopers were involved uh, I never knew him because he sadly passed away when I was about three years old so okay. I didn't know any of the history beyond that but my father then uh, as far as I remember was always in the industry okay uh, through the days of the original EK Green uh, uh, found founder's way into Cellermosch Farmers wineries okay and was quite instrumental in launching mainstay in the, in the local market in, in Durban okay uh, and uh, I still remember some of the stories he used to tell us about how how they used to uh, get the brand into the market. Yeah. But specifically, they were targeting the the Indian market that, at that stage. So they would go into the hotels uh, down. if you remember the old Butewitz Hotel and those kind of places in Durban? And they would uh, do their do their work there, and and and. Uh, for the brand and just try and get it out there. At that stage, Kane wasn't, a, wasn't really a recognized brand. I think in Mainstay, they saw that they had a high profile brand that they wanted to launch. And of course, we all know how successful that was. Yeah. So, but it wasn't an easy, It wasn't an easy road as far as I understand.
0: Was uh, was um, was there any other cane on the market at that at the time, all branded or how did it work?
1: Not that I recall. I think Smirnoff was just making its way then at, yeah. that, at that time, and um, there might have been some other cheaper brands that were available. Yeah. Probably no name brands, if if you if you want to call it that. Uh, but I think in Wednesday they specifically were targeting. Certain, a certain market and a certain price point and a, yeah. and a certain image of the brand
0: okay. and, and so
1: he spent a lot of time on that project um, once he left Sellebosch Farmers Wineries he bought the Montana Sellers yeah. store on Argyle Road from the Koenigs Gerard Koenig and his father who owned it at the time okay. and Gerard continued to work for them
0: did he not end up earning a spot on
1: I did. Yeah. Yes. Okay. He eventually went I and had a spot on, and yeah. had a couple of them, in fact. Okay. And as I understand, today still, still selling wine around the town.
0: Yeah. He's got and a wine club. And
1: enjoying himself very much, I believe. Uh. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, so okay, your dad bought it from them.
1: Yes. Okay. Yes. So I came into the business um, sometime after that, about uh, after I'd finished my national service. Oh, messing around, doing a couple of other things and I eventually came into the business at about 80... I think it was. Oh, that's long ago.
0: 1979, It really perhaps.
1: dates you. It does date me. <laughs> it does date me. At that time, they had an extension to the retail liquor division called Liquor Master yep. and they were producing a cane spirit, a brandy, a gin and uh, importing a... a a uh, Scotch whiskey in barrel, which was then broken down to the correct strength and put in bottle. Yeah, mm, wow. They—that was my first job. Technically, I used to mix the cane.
0: <laughs> the cane
1: mixer. That was the cane mixer. The cane mixer at Lickemore. So I broke my teeth in the in the bottling department. I want to
0: see that on your LinkedIn profile. It's, uh, it's <laughs> not there, but I <laughs> perhaps I should put it. <laughs> yeah there must be a fancy name for that blender or something
1: well these days I think they have very fancy names <laughs> for whatever you want to call it but it, yeah technically thats that was what I did so I learned how to how to how to get it from let's say tank to bottle, yeah and the processes that were involved. Uh, I spent some time doing that and then i I went into the distribution side of the business just to understand that for another year or two.
0: Yeah, at, at at that old Montana store, was there there was like a in the old days there was a, something in the wasn't there like a belt or something that you tro- shipped the stuff downstairs or, yes, or was it was. somewhere
1: else? No, there was a belt.
0: Um, it was quite common. Where
1: else did I the, see it? The um, the spirit division and the bottling part- department and the distribution etc. for for. Um, other deliveries was behind the original Montana Sellers
0: okay.
1: what's now Mr. Price I believe uh, okay. and um, yes yeah, so I spent some time there then went across to the distribution side I learned about the distribution Did
0: that, was it that on a different
1: site it was next door uh, Okay. At, yeah. at Mr. all Price, part yeah. of the same, yeah. same business okay. so kind of cut my teeth on, on those sort of things um, and then uh, my next boss was a, was a guy called Phil Ferreira who but your dad owned the business he, he owned the business okay. but Phil Ferreira ran the uh, wholesale division from a sales perspective and we had a product called Skipper Cane, I don't know if you recall that uh, it was quite successful okay. at its time because it was priced strategically lower yeah. than the the opposition and they had quite a quite a clever slogan which said switch to skipper and put the change in your pocket. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, clearly a digger at, at Mainstay at the yeah. time. So that yeah, it was a volume thing obviously, you yeah. know, and it was had some, some success Yeah. I think that I think they had a lot of fun with it at the time.
0: Okay. Do you think there was I mean was there in those days, I know there, there was a lot of Shenanigans happening with excise duty and and stuff like that. Um, do, do you think that sort of stuff happened in those days already?
1: As far as I I I recall, I I, I didn't wasn't aware of it, but okay. I was I was fairly sure that there was something going on. Uh, who were the ringleaders or who were most involved at the time? I'm not really sure, yeah. but there clearly were times when advertised prices were, were somewhat lower than <laughs> practically possible yeah. put it that way yeah. so how that all transpired on the wash I don't really remember yeah. but it's always been
0: a problem But safe to yeah. say
1: it's always been a problem yeah. I think one way or another yeah, I, mean, I don't know to what extent it is now probably yeah. not, not as well, not the same
0: I think a bottle of uh, uh, any bottle of spirits excises about 60 rand and then you've still got to add the the value of the product and and the bottling process and the, and obviously the packaging. Exactly. Um, I mean, and I often see product, product. at uh, at seventy rand, and, and there's no ways <laughs> that yeah. that is a, a true reflection of what it what it should cost. I don't think so. It can't be. And uh, when I started my own distribution business, and I went to see some. Uh, guys in Joburg and uh, he said don't ever get into the vodka business or the cane business because you can only run a vodka business if you're cheating, the, the tax man and uh, yeah, I also Still seems to be the case today. <laughs> yeah, so they did that um, and I mean, we chatted about the cane, cane, as I said to you earlier, I met somebody at uh, the Vans Hotel in Camperdown once, I think, Keter Ridge, Umlaus Road, and he mentioned that they used to get a gallon of cane and then they had to water it down. I don't know if you was a worker at a distillery or at a cane farm, I don't know what the, I can't remember, but you said something similar. So you, you... As
1: far as I'm aware in the early days, that's how it was delivered. Mm. It was delivered in, in gallon containers or configuration of gallon containers and then watered down on site.
0: Yeah. Was it from NCP or were there other, other suppliers? I think
1: NCP was the main supplier yeah. in those days.
0: Yeah, probably still is, yeah?
1: Probably still is. So, yeah, obviously the regulations weren't quite as strong and it wasn't as well regulated. But I think that, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't really know how, how, how well it was managed yeah. or, or monitored. But I do remember going to outlets, outlets like Butterworth Hotel down near Central Durban, uh, Tom and Nadu at the time owned that place, and I still remember those big glass containers that sat on the on the on the bar, and the cane would literally get tapped off out of those containers <laughs> really? into the like glasses, a, like
0: a like a draft, <laughs> almost like a draft beer well, today. Uh,
1: so, what the measure was, I'm not really sure, uh, but it seemed to work at the time. Okay and I think you'll probably find some of those glass containers are still knocking around in a a few places
0: keep my eyes open Um, do you recall um, the guy that started 1up liquors Frank Jason? yes because we're sitting here at Orr Centre, and you know that the Jason family owns the centre.
1: Yes, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. I remember Frank Jason?
0: I met him on the on a plane once. He sat next to me, and he said, "Who do you work for?" I said, "I work for One Up Distributors." And he said, "You stole my name." I said, "Yes, I did." <laughs> 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 and he had a, he, he told me an interesting story, and I must must actually find I must find him. And Because uh, you owned the Imperial Hotel, didn't you? That's right, yeah. yeah.
1: And they had their own brand, as I remember, one up mm. as well. Cane and brandy and yeah. <laughs> gin and everything else. I think he was very successful at the time. Certainly with the hotels.
0: Yeah, yeah. And he had a plane and he flew around visiting all his franchises. Um, <laughs> and how long did did your... Your dad still owned uh, the Liberty or the Argyle, what was it, Montana sale- Sellers?
1: Montana Sellers. Sellers. Yeah, it was then bought by Bacardi Group. Ah, okay. And um, they were they were investing more into their retail division.
0: Was that still, who controlled that group then?
1: Union One. Ah. It was part of Union Wine Group. Okay. They wanted to expand, as I, as I recall, their, their retail division, specifically in a in because they had almost almost none. Yeah. And that was obviously quite a good acquisition for them. Uh, then sometime later, it was bought by Liberty Liquors. And that was the Hoopers family? or Yeah. Ken Henniker was the... Oh, yes, I remember his name. Was the go-to man there, and he he did a lot of good things with that business. He really... Yeah. He really uh, took it to another level. As you know, Ken was a, a great servant of the industry and a wonderful gentleman. Yeah. And he really did a lot for that, for I that business. I can't really remember him. So, and now it continues to thrive, obviously, still today. Yeah, and now
0: it's part of the Robinson Ultra Group. Ultra Group. Um, and for me, interesting is that you guys were the first to import vintage beer into Natal
1: well after not the first after we left the retail side we my dad bought a wholesale license called Team Liquor World and so he, he started that and then I joined him about a year later we had a small but interesting range of local estate wines that we were selling okay. and soon after that did you buy did you buy the whole portfolio or was we it went, just a license no we just bought the license ok and then we went looking for some agencies so mm-hmm. we started in the wine wine sector we went down to the cape and we met with a few friends and, and spoke to a few people who we knew were interested and we put together a small portfolio of, of wines and that's where we felt we wanted to concentrate soon after that we, we met and uh, became or developed a, a, some form of a local distribution partnership with Waschendal Wines that was just a, when they were starting to, to become successful and um, Vergelegen was, an ex, a, was a natural extension of that business for them so we had a little bit of help you know, from, from the big guy to, to get us going a bit and we we did that business got that business going for for a while five or six five or six years of good uh, good wine distribution mm. so we had a bit of a, a platform albeit a small one mm. in the in, in the retail side in terms of our distribution then almost by chance we met um, a character by the name of Gaspard Bossett from Namibia breweries and after a couple of meetings we we chatted about the possibility of us distributing some mm. beer for them they they re- really weren't represented in, in Natal they had a footprint in in the Cape and they had one in the in the Transvaal
0: and that was uh, was it with Manfred and yeah Manfred Huff
1: yeah and in the in the Cape I think they had a i think it was greg holtman who was who was already in situ in terms of doing some distribution for them okay but wasn't wasn't he working for them he was working for them at the time yeah yeah. they wanted to expand their business in in the country and move from a a just being sort of available through a local distributor into having a, a full platform so that they could launch their brand properly yeah. in the South African market they sure. saw the opportunity yeah. and uh, it was yeah. obviously a good opportunity because their brands represented something slightly mm. different to to what was on offer
0: yeah so so they, they owned their own distribution in Joburg in Cape Town but left you to do KZN yes
1: yeah. yes in time Cape Town uh, was also given to Greg Holtman and he took a ownership of the distribution there
0: yeah
1: as we did here, okay. Uh, became a very big market quite mm. quickly, so they were a little bit more progressive there, and they built their own their own warehouse, they developed their own infrastructure yeah. within the brewery.
0: It was massive in Joeburg. It was massive. Yeah, no? there was I mean, a the growth was, George. was you The George? The growth was huge. No, I'm trying to think of who the people were in Joeburg.
1: Well. Had a, they eventually had a guy called Dimitri Dimitri, not George Dimitri the Greek he is. That's um, the one. Anybody who lives in Germany will remember Dimitri yeah. And he, he, was, he was quite special at the time Because he was just the kind of guy they needed I think he'd come out of the Gilbys right. stable and He was well connected He was well connected and well liked And, mm. and, and they put together a really big hard working team mm. Who we did well to get a footprint very quickly in that market Durban obviously was a much smaller market mm. and strategically it wasn't as important for, for Namibu brewers at the time because they knew that once Cape Town and Johannesburg were really up to speed then Durban would be a natural mm. extension and as we know sometimes Durban can be a, a, little, a little lagging in terms yeah. of, of, uh, of getting the traction going so when did you start doing...
0: Vintage? So that was 1993. Okay, so it wasn't, it wasn't long before we started with Bavaria.
1: No, it wasn't. It was I'm more sure. or less the same time. Because
0: I started in ninety four.
1: And I think that's indicative of the, f- of the, the market at the time, yeah, that, that there was scope for other brands. Mm. People were starting to look around. Uh, Namibia breweries had the slogan with the Vintuk beer that it was only made with natural product and yeah. you know pure beer. We sold it on the basis that you yeah. we weren't gonna get a hangover. <laughs> and, and then the whole chemical thing started. Yeah, it's just well a nice thing to say, but yeah. I mean you know, people used to talk about it, you know, yeah. oh there's no chemicals in this beer. Yeah. Well, no there wasn't, but you know it's always what suits you and what yeah, you like to course. drink. But I think we did we did play with that a bit and we, we used it to our advantage and and Nothing it developed very nicely. You know. no. It was it was really small in the beginning. It was the beer wasn't great to be honest. It was quite heavy and dark and oh, really? high alcohol at the time. They were trying to promote right in the beginning a brand called Export. Yes, Wintok Export it wasn't in a blue can. It was in a blue can. Yeah. yeah, but very heavy beer, hard to drink, especially in the in the, in the Durban humidity but very soon after that they switched back to the Vintok Lager yeah. recognising that that was the one that they wanted to to do the work with
0: okay and Tafel never went, stopped, did anything Tafel
1: only later yeah. uh, was launched because they specifically wanted it to be Vintok and then Vintok because at that time if you rec- remember it was when the whole drink and driving right. thing became a problem and and it was seen as a good alternative
0: yeah. I'm certainly glad that I didn't know your background because you, it might have intimidated me. When we started Bavaria, we did, I thought uh, Peter and his, his crony Alan were, <laughs> were the opposition. If I'd known you, you've got three generations of <laughs> legacy and stuff to stand on. The, yeah. Well, we were still the small guys I'll at the time, yeah? You were? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we were trying hard,
1: but we were still the small guys. We still had to try and hard from all well, the yes. they say, be reps because they still ever go. At us whenever they could, but yeah, it was it was interesting and uh, it was a great it was great fun. Yeah, at the time uh, we were young and we had a we had a young exciting group of guys who yeah. were with us enjoying the the success and it was it was really good. Yeah. We we then. Yeah, you worked, out, a you, in, yeah, in, you worked in, out of uh, Tallgate area there Tallgate initially yeah. uh, which was not much more than a hole in the wall originally can
0: you, can you like, recall how many cases you would have moved in a month of oh, beer yeah. yeah well any numbers stuck in your memory well
1: our, our contract required us to buy a, to buy a truck on the first order which was 34 pallets yeah and by the second month, we still had half the stock mm. and we weren't quite sure if we'd made a mistake so we were we were getting orders for one or two or three or four maybe five cases mm. at best and then one day we got a breakthrough we had a listing with macro and macro Springfield bought half a pallet and we thought half well a that's wonderful <laughs> but to be honest it, it moved quite quickly from there okay uh, I think we were getting support from the brewery so they were helping with advertising spend and you know the the bigger outlets like macro, etc., were were supporting it, yeah. and it started quite quickly. Um, we moved to a bigger premises in in Pine Town with about two and a half thousand square meters, so we had enough capacity there.
0: Is that the one where you ended up, that you ended up buying?
1: Yes. Okay. In Pinetown. Yeah. Or Richmond Road. That's right. Mm. Yeah.
0: And that was that was great because
1: suddenly we had a home, mm. we had space, and we had a we had a presence. Not just in the market but you know for people to see people yeah. could come and see was that, really that things were going on there you know things <laughs> were happening <laughs> look we were very aware of bavaria and we you know it was there but we never saw bavaria as our
0: yeah, as our main opposition
1: though. we yeah. it, it was you know in, in essence almost an ally because yeah. it was it was it what we were trying to do to to extend the the option available to the public and let's be honest, it was South African breweries that we were mm. we were trying to all trying to get market share from. But I remember those days with Bavaria <laughs> fondly. I like think I made a few visits to your premises and had a look see what was going on.
0: Yeah, it's a pity that one uh, that really one couldn't team up. I mean, obviously in hindsight, but it would have been na- a a nice uh, force if we if we could have teamed up.
1: I and think uh, I think that the breweries, you know, with their... With their objective, they they wouldn't have wanted to do that no, of because course they not. wanted to be specific. Not, yeah. And look, it worked. I think you know they, they did well. The brand continued to grow, and it's still a good brand today. It is. Uh, I mean, uh, you asked about Tafel. Tafel wasn't really in the mix in those days, no. and it was only after a year or two, once we'd made a couple of visits up to to the brewery, that we you know could see a little bit more about what was happening there but we realized all the Namibians were drinking tafel mm. and we kept saying to them well yeah. let's get tafel down in South Africa because it tasted really
0: yeah.
1: really good and as I recall the tafel was originally made in the small brewery at Swakovmint yeah. which they had acquired which they had acquired mm. I think from the Hansa Hansa days
0: yeah so I think and they,
1: they... had a really good uh, brewmaster there Christian somebody his name was I don't remember his surname now and he was really good, and they were producing brilliant brews out of that little brewery. Yeah, and I think they made all the draft beer was made from that brewery as well. And Urbach. And Urbach. Yeah.
0: And uh, the son of the owner of the Soccer Brewery lives in Hillcrest. Does he? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's introduced himself to me once or twice. Um, I see him Is around Hillcrest. I can't remember okay. his name. yeah he lives around. Yeah, he does some work at Hillcrest Tops. Oh, okay. Yeah. I would like to meet him. Chat about some of those days. Yeah. <laughs> so I've tried to get uh, to ask Manfred Huff but I mean, he obviously mentioned some names, but I can't, I can't recall. Um, and when, when did the then you also did Bex, eh? or was it uh, much later?
1: It was a bit later. We we started. I think next came Holston. Okay. Holston was a. It was a really, really nice brand, you know, out of Germany, from Bremen. Yeah, it was Klaus von Müller. It was Klaus von
0: Müller.
1: <laughs> oh, wonderful man, that is. Yeah. And he was worked very hard in the salving market. They started brewing Holsten in, in Namibia under license, and it was a good brew. And it, uh, yeah, I think it had a lot of success in, in Teng and probably yeah. the Cape. Especially not so tap. much yeah. I think because of the the taste profile yeah. it was quite a bitter beer and uh, to our mind not quite as suitable for the for the humid German market but it nevertheless it was a super brand
0: mm. then later came Becks as well Yeah and then you then Holsten moved over to Bavaria I think That's, That's right That's where I met Horst uh, Klaus von Miller. That's right yeah Yeah, yeah. Okay, and Beck's Beck's was then still a family business,
1: or Beck's was still a family business. I remember going to visit the brewery. And uh, in Bremen. In Bremen. Yeah. It was um, Beck's was an interesting exercise again, similar to Holsten. It was quite a quite a high bitter content. Typical northern German profile. Was eh? typical northern German person, as you say, and delicious drinking, but not what we would call a sessionable okay. beer here
0: yeah.
1: so again with limited success certainly in this market yeah.
0: and uh, I was talking to somebody about Bex and he, and uh, oh, the prince prince from, from, from Bavaria you see Bex was always the international traveler the German traveler businessman anywhere you went in the world he demanded Bex and uh, now it's nowhere to be found i mean we is that right yeah i mean it's I'm not surprised. in the south african market There's only the alcohol free available um and it's obviously owned by abnbev now yeah um, I, I, I worked in bremen for for about a year and so I'm, I'm i've got fond memories of drinking bex we even had it on tap an hour in the in, the, in your apartment in the no, in the, in the <laughs> office in the bar Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, nice, nice brand. And Thanks.
0: can you remember launching the the Hofbrau? What was that yes. saga all about? Yeah. Somebody. Uh.
1: There, there were two different brands. There were two different launches. The one was a Hofbrau. and, and there was a Dust Pilsner. And there was a Dust Pilsner. I I can't recall at this stage which came first, but I yeah. suspect
0: it was Dust Pilsner yeah. that came first. And that was an fabric fabrication the brand. Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. We we we. S- we had asked the brewery to to look at doing a, um, a lighter sessionable, easy drinking beer about four percent alcohol which i think it was uh, in the more the pilsner style because they didn't really have one in the pilsner style mm. and that was the the result and instantly found quite a bit of success but didn't last okay unfortunately i i quite liked the brand and had my fair share of it, but uh, it, yeah. for whatever reason it didn't last. And I don't think they were too concerned about it because although they were looking for an extension to the existing range, they did want to make sure that Winter yeah. Lager was was their first first
0: choice for the consumer. And were you still doing the other export and what other spe- export was there as special? well?
1: Nothing really came of that. Special, mm-hmm. I think, we went back to Namibia as a Namibian brand mm-hmm. only.
0: Okay.
1: And Urbok was a seasonal... Was their seasonal Winter or hunting beer, yeah. they used to call it. Um, also, a delicious beer, amazing beer. Yeah, but you can't drink too many of them. No, not at the high half, alcohols A
0: half a bottle. Yeah, a half a bottle
1: <laughs> was good. Then, as you said, half they launched as well. I think the the op- option there was to try and have a brand that was cheaper than the than the winter pricing point. And perhaps get a little bit closer to the SAB pricing, mm-hmm. and try to swing people on price a bit more. It's quite a nice testing beer.
0: And the idea be- behind Hofbrau—I mean, for us, Hofbrau means the Hofbrau House in Munich—but it's got nothing to do with that. Hofbrau is just anybody can use that name. I don't think there's—it's there's, it's a trademarked word.
1: Yeah, I don't—I don't know what the marketing mm. specialists were thinking at the time, but I'm, I imagine that they were thinking. Hofbrau is synonymous with hmm. volume beer at, uh, at a good price. You yeah. know, and okay. perhaps that's what they were hoping to achieve. <laughs> because SAB also didn't get much success th- with the brand. Not at all.
0: Okay, because SAB also la- launched launched Hofbrau at the same time. That's right. Yeah. Um, which was, I mean, wasn't it about exactly the same time? I think it was the same so time. So there must have been some yeah uh, spying going on yeah, on absolutely. one of the sides. No doubt. <laughs> no doubt. Um. And and then, sometime the the Amstel thing happened. Hey, what was that again?
1: Well, that was the the whole amalgamation with Diageo and Heineken.
0: Um, wasn't it before that already? Were you talking about where, the, the Amstel Heineken? Where Heineken decided not to renew the, the agreement with the SAB or something?
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah, sorry. Correct. Um, they they decided not to renew the agreement, and they they went to, to Namibia Brews to see if they would brew for them. Okay. Or sell under license or whatever it was.
0: Yeah. And Heineken yeah. wasn't
1: really that big then. Eh? It wasn't big, and uh, I think the Namibians felt that it was counterproductive to their own brands in, yeah. in many ways, certainly from a sales perspective. And bear in mind, that also had a go at Guinness too for a while, you know, they brewed Guinness under license in Namibia, Namibia. Okay. specifically on draft, I think. And also with limited success, both here and even less success in Namibia. I can imagine. So yeah, from there, Heineken, I guess, became part of the Diageo folders. you know, as it turns out, from thereafter. Is that the way? It, no, is that the way you call it?
0: It took a while, I think, until until the whole Brand House joint venture happened. But I not But somehow you ended up doing um, Amstel.
1: No, not Amstel. Didn't you do Amstel? No, not Amstel. Ah. Amstel was never part of, never for us.
0: Ah, okay.
1: I somehow thought there was talk about it happening. Ah, okay. But uh, obviously, Heineken must have been in some sort of discussion with the Azure at that point and was, I guess it was all put on hold for a while okay
0: and then they did that joint venture to form Brand House, and yeah. um, and that's kind of where you lost Wintuk.
1: yeah that's when uh, that's when our contracts were well, came to an end yeah and um, we okay. kind of went our own ways after that
0: okay and you'd build a, quite a nice business up to then and then you lose the big vintage portfolio, and then you got to re <laughs> regroup, I guess. Well,
1: yeah, that's how it goes. Eh? When yeah. you don't own the brand, yeah. uh, you expect that those sort of things happen. But to be fair, the Breweries, right to the last day, as always, were absolute gentlemen. Okay. And they went out of their way to to make it comfortable for us, and okay. you know, they were very good about doing the right thing.
0: They should have just given you taffle and said.
1: Run with that well, one. Wouldn't that have been nice? <laughs> I might still be doing that too. Uh, okay. So yeah, they they all went their separate ways, and so did we. So uh, we diversified back into whatever we could pick up at the time. When I say we, because uh, at that stage Hilton had joined me, and um, then took a took a share in the, in the business with okay. me my dad had since recently retired uh, this was early 2000s okay. so he um, yeah so he joined the business at, then, at that time and we kind of went back to the drawing board and said okay well we need to get this thing going again so we started looking at more wine principles
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, we got distribution from other principals who were looking for a mostly smaller distributors who were looking for a footprint in, in KZN that we could provide. And um, we started talking to a couple of other principals and a few, a few beer people. And that led us into our next venture, which was NMK Schultz.
0: Okay. And, yeah, that was quite a nice business. I mean, I, I... I had uh, we at one stage we were doing a bit of distribution for NMK Schultz in Durban through the Bavaria network, um, and I must give Rod Simmons a lot of credit. He taught uh, taught me a lot of things about uh, I want to call them cult brands that NMK were doing. I mean these magnificent European brands, Brilliant. liqueurs and and beers. And beers Rod's too. passion was always I mean it was infectious. I mean some maybe sometimes too much energy and too much push but I certainly learned a lot from him Um, yeah in the NMK business I I believe Mr. Schultz is still he lives in Hart Bay he's obviously also getting on but uh, yeah I think the story was that uh, his son passed away in a car accident
1: I heard something about that and
0: then I think he wanted to he lost interest in the in the business and wanted to sell it
1: yeah yeah,
0: and that's where you guys picked up the business.
1: That's where we picked it up. Yeah, it was it was pretty much the four guys that were sort of thrown under the bus after the Namibia breweries <laughs> <laughs> in final episode, and um, um, uh, with Greg Holtman from Cape Town, and Andre Homan in Johannesburg, and Rod Bender.
0: I don't remember uh, Rod. Um,
1: Rob. Hey. Rob. Yeah, he was a, he was a. Great financial guy. Uh, okay, and Andre was from Coca-Cola, or what? Originally Coca-Cola, but I think he spent some time at SAB too, and then he headed up the Namibia breweries operation in, uh, in South Africa. That, yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, and the and the Nmk short story didn't uh, didn't go that well, I think. Eh? <clears throat> Not in the final analysis, no.
1: Uh, I think the, there were was some there was some differences there, and there were some peculiarities in the business when we first came to that it was mostly wine spirits and a little bit of specialist beer yeah. it was a great beer but not big volumes no yeah. no no major brands that were going to sell any volumes and I think there was some differences of opinion the, the sales team were quite highly focused on the wine portfolio yeah. certainly the sales managers and I think the idea was to try and turn it into a, a beer company in the long run So there was a little bit of conflict, if you want to call it that, internally. Mm. And probably never really found its rhythm. Mm. We became quite uh, involved with the Stella brand at that point. Stella. Stella. And then that's when the whole... And that, that was quite... Yeah, there was quite a lot of opportunity. We, we got a lot of support from the Stella brand, and we the objective was to try and make it into a much bigger brand in this country with a view to local brewing at some point. Mm.
0: Because we did some local brewing at uh, Bavaria, bro. We made draft, I think. Yeah. And was that about the time when the whole NB uh, consolidation in Europe happened, or was Stella still a, a small business? I think I think it was soon after that yeah. that InBev became yeah, all the Newcastle Brown Ales and all that stuff. All the mixing
1: up of brands. Because mm.
0: yeah.
1: it was about ten years ago, if I recall. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: not sure. Okay. So yeah, we got uh, involved, rightly or wrongly, with KWB at the time, mm. and uh, that didn't work out in the wash. But yeah, we we moved on again, and we. We went back to what we what we started with in the beginning, which was the Team Liquor brand and it diversified into a business called Beverage Emporium. Mm. And we hooked up with uh, guys from Joburg and Cape Town that we knew and tried to get some brands that we could sell on a national footprint, but with independent ownership in each mm. of the reason. different regions. Yeah. And I still think that there's a there's a really good opportunity for those yeah. those kind of operations. As I've watched it over the years, I've seen how the smaller guys that get swallowed up by the big bigger guys, yeah. by virtue of the fact that they lose brands all the time. Yeah. And you talked about it earlier, how you know there's there's scope for smaller, more specific, customer-focused mm. businesses that will deliver your brand. Quickly to customers' door and efficiently for bigger volumes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm all, I, I mean, with the, something that I'm thinking of now. I mean, the 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 whole birth of the redistributor. I mean, when did that start? The first one was, I think, uh, Marriott. Gardens, remember? Could have been Gardens, yeah. Remember, they used to start. They started their business delivering to the Kings Park boxes and tents afterwards, and and they grew into a redistributor. And I think that, in my memory, was kind of one of the first redistribution businesses. And then came Siggy from Fast Track, and um, I mean that that kind of business is massive now. There's every yeah. every town has got a redistributor and. Uh, where you can do one-stop shopping and I mean that didn't exist uh, No, it didn't uh, in, in the early days We
1: were quite nervous of those guys yeah. because although they were buying product from us we saw them as a threat because yeah. essentially they were going to do what what we wanted to do yeah. and we never really understood well, certainly in the beginning we didn't quite understand how to how to tackle it yeah. understanding that the, the big guys were supporting them heavily because it was an, another distribution alternative or option for them yeah. and the whole rebate thing i think became quite a big deal <laughs> and obviously for us smaller guys we couldn't afford to give those kind of rebates so we were we were left out of it and we had to try and try and work around it so as much as we could we wanted them to help us because we knew that it was an alternative getting product to, yeah. to, the, to the customer but it was an expensive one for smaller, smaller businesses like yeah. ours.
0: Yeah, where you got fixed margins. Yeah. Now, of course, those redistributors are playing a large part in the market mm. all over the country. Massive, and I think massive. I think it's all thanks to the House guys. I think they birthed these monsters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah and and uh, you finally sold uh, your shares to to Hilton and his partners and uh now you you done with the business
1: Yeah that was almost 2 years ago Really and, uh, at the time I decided I was going to take a 6 month break Yeah and uh see what comes up in in the meantime and um, I'm now a little bit further into my sabbatical <laughs> no, in six, 6 months, months but I have been doing uh, a little bit of work with a couple of mates of mine in the Thank industry. You. I chat to Hilton a lot and I'm up to date with, with mm. what he's doing and, and they've got a good recipe there which will, will be great for them in a long-term mm. perspective. And uh, a couple of my other mates I've been talking to about some projects that we're busy with, but at this stage, mm. nothing, nothing specific.
0: Yeah.
1: So I try to keep my ear close to the ground as much as I can. <laughs> After... 35 years or whatever it is, you know, it's hard not to... Yeah, not to be involved. It's hard not to wander yeah. into a, your local retail store and look at prices and yeah. what the offering is. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I am. Yeah. Good. What about you? Do you find yourself going back into that
0: sort of no. No, no, the distribution, distribution profile? No, yeah. no, no. No, It's not my, my core strength thing. Controlling is not what I do, and collecting money and controlling staff and stock. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough business now, and it yeah. certainly has changed a lot.
0: Look, the business. Mm. I think the biggest change from what I've seen is social media. I mean, people can that I interview now start a business, and uh, they can launch a brand on social media, and they've never been to Joburg, but they get orders from Joburg. Um One of the, the guys that I interviewed last week, Rob Haynes, who started a company called League of Peers, has just done a crowdfunding for a new gin. He raised over a million rand on, on, on for you know crowdfunding and uh, overnight, I mean not overnight. he's obviously done a lot of work and, and stuff, but yeah I mean those opportunities exist now they didn't yeah. exist five years ago.
1: Social media is amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. It's incredible yeah. what 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 you can do with it. Yeah. And specifically with with those those kind of activities. Yeah. If I just think of what's happening now in the gin market. Yeah. And you're very close to that yourself. I know specifically around the around craft gin, etc. You see all all of it on social media. Yeah. It's amazing. The events, the brands, the profiles, the people—it's all on
0: social media. Yeah. And uh, and I think the consumer is is so sensitive to or they can pick up if it's fake if it's a corporate behind it and I think yeah. it's a big threat for the, for the big yeah. brands and the big corporates yeah. I mean if if a, a big company buys a small craft brewery or distillery I think it, it can be you know it can be a, a nail in the coffin yeah sure <laughs> sure uh, yeah it's, it's brilliant I love social
1: media and it's amazing what it's doing the world over
0: yeah yeah, and I think it's a massive opportunity for the small guys to to really make a difference like we've done at Hillcrest Tops, for example, where we've just really created that whole destination on social media. Yeah. Um, and again, that wouldn't have been possible. Yeah, but of course, you also have to be committed to it. You yeah. know, it
1: takes a lot of investment and a lot
0: of time and yeah.
1: you know, organization to, to bring those brands into an outlet mm. like that and, and have them yeah. available.
0: Yeah. Thanks Peter, it's, it was very really, very really good catching up with you and I look forward to some, some more stories and maybe you can introduce me to a few of the old timers that uh, have got a, a story or two to tell.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's been great chatting and yeah. for me to reminisce a bit because it goes back a while and yeah. uh, how the markets have changed and yeah. the, the business has changed and the brands have changed. It's, it's been quite an evolution really.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's been great chatting. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks. And wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you.